Please stay tuned for important disclosure information at the conclusion of this episode. Welcome to the Investing Insights Podcast from Morningstar. In this week's podcast, Christine Benz encourages investors to prioritize creating policy statements this month. Russ Kinnell uncovers which funds investors are selling in 2021. Christine Benz shows retirees how to assess their portfolios. And Ben Johnson tells us everything we need to know about thematic funds. Let's get started. Here are Christine Benz and Susan Jabinski from Morningstar, Inc. Hi, I'm Susan Jabinski with Morningstar. Morningstar's Director of Personal Finance, Christine Benz, has created a month-by-month financial to-do list for 2021. She's here today to talk with us about our to-dos for June, which are creating policy statements for our investment and retirement plans. Christine, thank you for joining us today. Susan, it's great to see you. So you're a big advocate of creating investment and retirement policy statements. What's the value in doing so? Well, I really think there are three key benefits. The first is that having a policy statement ensures that you have a plan. So if you've gone to the bother of thinking through what your savings rate should be, what your asset allocation should be, and so forth, that means that you have a plan and you are set and ready to make these documents. So that's the first thing. The second thing is that having these policy statements can help you keep your plan on track. So if you have an investment policy statement, you can periodically compare your asset allocation to, say, your target asset allocation. With your retirement policy statement, you can compare your real withdrawal rate relative to whatever withdrawal rate you set out in the retirement policy statement. So keeping your plan on track. And then the third benefit is really one that is in the realm of succession planning. If someone needs to manage your financial affairs for you for a short while or if something should happen to you, it's a kind of a blueprint for how you were doing things as you were doing them. So it might be a financial advisor who needs to take over or your spouse or, or an adult child, but whoever it is will have some sort of an overview of whatever your plan was for your investment mix as well as for your retirement plan. So let's start by talking about the investment policy statement. What are some of the key components of a successful investment policy statement? Yeah, I think you don't need to overcomplicate it. You want to think about the basics. So if you're in accumulation mode, you'd want to document your savings rate, what types of vehicles that you're contributing to. You'd certainly want to include something about your asset allocation, your target asset allocation, as well as how that might change over time as you get closer to your goal date. You'd want to include a little bit of detail about how you are selecting investments and what sort of threshold you're holding your investments to. And finally, I think you'd include some detail about how to monitor that portfolio. When when will you make changes? When will you decide if it's time to add something new? Those are the key things I would include in an investment policy statement. And by the way, Susan, we've created templates that people can use. You don't need to create these from scratch. We've created um, easy-to-use templates that you could print out and, and use and populate with your own information. And you say that it's important with an investment policy statement that you don't just create it and then, you know, stick it in a drawer somewhere. The point of an investment policy statement, at least one of the points of it, is to sort of use it on an ongoing basis. How do you do that? Right. I I think a good once annual review is plenty for most investors where they are 
taking a look at their plan currently, taking a look at their investments currently, and comparing that to what's in their investment policy statement. So the contents of the portfolio may have shifted around, invariably that will happen, and you may need to do some trimming on your equities, for example. Your own situation may have changed. So maybe early in your accumulator career, you were entirely focused on retirement, but then you had a child. And now college savings is part of your investment plan as well. So your own circumstances might change as well and necessitate a change to the plan and a change to the policy. But definitely think of that this is a document that you will use to monitor your plan and, and monitor how you're doing toward achieving your financial goals. Now, Christine, you just mentioned that, you know, having a child is a life event that might cause you to make a change to your investment policy statement. So what are some other examples of times where investors might want to, you know, take a second look and, and update that? Yeah, certainly asset allocation would be another area where making changes over time would be appropriate. Perhaps you'd even want to lay that out in your investment policy statement that perhaps you're starting with an 80-20 asset allocation, 80% in equities, 20% in fixed income and other assets, and then gradually moving to say a 60-40 or a 60 or a 50-50 blend as retirement draws close. But if you haven't uh, put that in, um, you may want to change your asset allocation. You may want to change the parameters around investments as your views evolve. So a lot of investors have gravitated away from active funds, for example, to index products. You'd want to update your investment policy statement accordingly as, as your own viewpoints of what constitutes a good investment has changed. And let's pivot over now to a retirement policy statement. You know, you don't hear as much talk about these particular types of documents. So tell us a little bit about what it is, what's in it, and why you think it's important. Yeah, I really love this idea. And here, too, we've created a template that people can use to kind of get them thinking about what the main components of a retirement policy statement might be. But at the top of the list would be your anticipated retirement date, what other non-portfolio income sources you might be bringing into retirement, whether Social Security or a pension and how much income you expect them to supply on a monthly or an annual basis. And then you'd want to get into a bit of detail about your approach to your portfolio. So your withdrawal rate your target asset allocation for your in-retirement portfolio, how you'll draw upon that portfolio. Will you draw from cash holdings? Will you draw from dividends? Will you use just rebalancing? You'd want to document all of that in the retirement policy statement. You may want to include a little bit of detail about your Social Security start date, when you expect to begin claiming Social Security, when your spouse, if you have one, will claim Social Security. So those are some of the key things that would go into an RPS. I see this as working hand in hand with an investment policy statement. So you would want to still have an IPS even when you're retired, but the retirement policy statement would be complimentary. And then so how would someone use a retirement policy statement on an ongoing basis? Well, here again, I think that once annual review can be incredibly powerful and it can be just enough. You probably don't want to monitor your plan too frequently. So get in there annually, check up on your withdrawal rate over the past year, check 
in on your asset allocation, check in on the main constituents of your retirement plan and make sure that what you're doing is in sync with your plan. And if it's not, and we, we might naturally have higher spending years in retirement, for example, you can course correct in the year ahead or in the years ahead. If you've overspent in the past year, you may find that you can tighten your belt a little bit and make up for that. So that's the nice thing that you can reflect on what has happened over the past year and make adjustments to make your plan look better going forward. And Leslie, Christine, you think that these documents should be as clear and as jargon-free as possible. Why do you think that's important? Well, as I said at the outset, I think that this type of document can be very valuable to your loved ones if they need to pick up your plan and figure out how you were managing it. So I do think that it helps to make it as, as plain spoken as you can possibly do. You don't need to, you know, sort of speak investment consultant. You'd want to put it in plain English. Also, if you have a spouse or another trusted loved one who you expect might be charged with picking up your plan and taking care of it, if something were to happen to you, show it to him or her and see if the information is digestible, if they understand it. If not, go back and adjust it until it is. I think that that's a great check to make sure that the plan that you've created isn't just understandable to you, it's understandable to other ones, other people as well. Well, Christine, thank you so much for your time today and for all the work you've done laying out a great roadmap for us to accomplish some financial jobs in 2021. We appreciate it. Thank you, Susan. I'm Susan Jabinski with Morningstar. Thank you for tuning in. Expand your investing horizons and look to the long term with Morningstar's podcast, The Long View. Join hosts Christine Benz and Jeff Patak as they talk to influential leaders in investing, advice, and personal finance. Search for and subscribe to The Long View today. Now, Russ Kennel from Morningstar Research Services fills us in on recent fund flows. I'm Susan Chabinski with Morningstar. Which funds are investors selling in 2021? Joining me today to discuss fund flows so far this year is Russ Kennel. Russ is Morningstar's Director of Manager Research and Editor of Morningstar Fund Investor. Hi, Russ. Thanks for being here today. Glad to be here. So let's talk a little bit about fund flows in general in 2021. What have the trends been? Uh, you know, they, they really have continued the, a lot of the longer term trends, uh, moving from active to passive, also open-end to ETF, which is more or less the same thing. Uh, ESG funds continue to draw money, uh, low-cost funds, uh, also, you know, Vanguard leading the way, uh, also have, have drawn a lot of money. So a lot of the broad trends have, have continued. Let's talk a little bit about a few funds that have experienced significant outflows this year. Uh, the first being principal small mid-cap dividend income. Um, the fund had kind of a relatively difficult or challenging 2020. Um, it lost a veteran co-manager earlier this year and a significant client pulled out of the fund. What should investors be expecting here? Uh, yeah, the, the fund is definitely a challenge. Whenever you have a smaller mid-cap fund with big outflows, that can be a much bigger problem than, say, at a large-cap fund or a high-quality bond fund. So it's definitely watching, worth watching to see if there's an impact. Uh, you mentioned Dave Simpson. Uh, one of the managers left, uh, but we still uh, like the team. We still rate it bronze, but you know the fund had a 73% uh, outflow over the trailing 12 months, which is huge. And so 
uh, you know, we'll have to see how that goes. In 2020, uh, their emphasis on dividends led them into energy and financials, which is a really bad place to be. Um, and so far this 2021, uh, that's been a pretty good place to be. So they've rebounded. That may stem the tide, uh, but it hasn't yet. So I definitely think it's worth watching whenever you have outflows in a small mid fund like this. Uh, another fund that's seen um, pretty sizable outflows is Boston Partners Long, so Long Short Research. And we downgraded that fund to neutral last year. Um, what's going on there? Uh, yeah, uh, our, our reason for downgrading it was we, when we looked at the process from another angle, we thought, well, divvying up uh, the, the assets among these sector specialists who then decide what they want to long, go long and short in leads to these sort of unintended um, macro bets on a sector or a regional level that maybe they wouldn't necessarily have wanted to make. Last year, the fund was very long value and short growth. Uh, and as a result, uh, trailed the average peer by about uh, 16 percentage points. Uh, so as a result, their uh, outflows were about 67%. Uh, now, we don't have a lot of uh, long, short funds with big outflows to compare it to. So it's, I'm, I'm not really certain exactly uh, what the impact will be. Obviously, they will need to manage both the short and the long end as they uh, handle those flows. Uh, but I, I do think it, it's, it's definitely a challenge for them uh, as as they have to kind of keep that long, short balance and uh, meet a lot of redemptions. Now, given that many value strategies have sort of staged a comeback during the past several months, um, what do you make of the outflows at Longleaf Partners Small Cap, which tends to be a little bit more value oriented? Uh, yeah, it's it's had about 52% outflow. And unfortunately, unlike the other two, the first two funds we mentioned, this one's just continued to perform poorly. So it it had a bad 2020, and it's having a bad 2021. Uh, so I definitely expect that uh, those outflows will very likely uh, continue. Unfortunately, uh, we used to like this fund. You know, we think it had some good fundamental characteristics, but uh, it's it's really suffered a long streak of underperformance. Uh, and so it's, it's really been disappointing. And I think those outflows uh, based on performance, I would imagine will continue for at least a little while. And then lastly, emerging market stock funds um, have seen some decent inflows lately, but Lazard Emerging Markets Equity um, has been in outflows. So, um, and that's on the heels of a few years, again, of, of relative underperformance. What do we think of that fund today? Yeah, again, emerging markets are another area where you have less liquidity than, say, a U.S. large cap or even European large cap. Uh, so it's definitely worth keeping an eye on. Uh, once again, uh, the story is about value. They they have a value tilt, and so they really underperformed uh, in 2020. Though they've come back a little bit uh, in 2021, but you know, a 49 percent outflow is a pretty significant hit. Uh, and and so again, when you get into these levels, you can have a bit of a self-fulfilling uh, action where outflows cause losses, losses cause outflows. So uh, again, I think uh, a little caution is, is warranted. and I think it's something we'll want to continue to watch. Well, Russ, thank you so much for your perspective today, not only on flows in general, but on these funds specifically. We appreciate it. You're welcome. I'm Susan Jabinski with Morningstar. Thank you for tuning in. What role did the finance industry play in closing the racial wealth gap? A little more than you might think. 
Tune in to our virtual panel, Closing the Gap, Building Black Dollars, on June 17th at 1 p.m. Central to find out more. We'll be discussing how advisors can help people from diverse backgrounds overcome financial obstacles and achieve investing goals. We'll also be accepting questions and sharing resources throughout the conversation, so you really don't want to miss out. Be sure to like and comment on Morningstar's YouTube channel and set a reminder to join the conversation on June 17th at 1 p.m. Central. Next, Christine Benz and Susan Jabinski discuss inflation protection for retirees. Hi, I'm Susan Jabinski for Morningstar. Consumers are seeing signs of inflation, which might strike fear into the hearts of some retirees who lived through the very high inflation rates of the 1970s and 1980s. Joining me to discuss how to assess how inflation-tough your retirement portfolio and plan are is Christine Benz, Christine's Morningstar's Director of Personal Finance. Hi, Christine. Thank you for being here today. Hi, Susan. It's great to see you. So how big of a concern is inflation right now? Should we start worrying? Well, you know, there have certainly been some worrisome headlines. We had a much higher inflation reading for the month of April than was expected. And I think that that has some consumers worried. We've seen the market appear to be a little bit worried about inflation. We've seen bond yields ticking up. Uh, The big thing that economists seem really puzzled by is that they're not sure whether this is just sort of a short-term phenomenon associated with the reopening of the economy, with fuller vaccinations, kind of the pent-up demand uh, that is out there, and whether it will go back to more normal levels going forward. So I would say it's very much in the category of watch this space. I don't think it's a hair-on-fire worry about inflation moment just yet. But certainly we all have gotten very accustomed to be to inflation being very, very low. It may not always be the case. So I think it's worth keeping on your dashboard, especially if you're someone who is retired and in part living on your portfolio. So if a retiree is concerned about inflation, how can he or she go about sussing out how big of a threat it might be for them? It's a really good question. I would say take a close look at your spending. The tricky part is that spending over the past year was pretty anomalous relative to what it's likely to be in the years ahead because we had so much constraint in terms of what we could do in terms of travel and restaurants and all the things that constitute quality of life, especially in in retirement. But do start taking stock of your spending. Think about the categories where the biggest parts of your budget go. The good news for retirees is that some of the categories where we've been seeing high inflation lately um, do not affect them as much as the general population. So energy prices we've seen have been going higher Retirees in aggregate tend not to spend as much on energy. They tend tend to not be commuting, for one thing. And so that's less of a drag on their budgets. On the other hand, healthcare inflation, at least historically, has been running higher than the general inflation rate. That's a category where retirees do tend to spend more than the general population. So spend some time looking back on your spending over the past year or two. Think about the categories where you're spending and take a look at whether the inflation is trending up or down in those areas. So the Bureau of Labor Statistics does uh, publish a really nice granular view of where inflation has been heading up or down. Compare that to your own spending categories. 
We think it's also important to take a look at your in-retirement income sources, specifically looking to find out if any of them offer you some inflation protection or an ability to keep up with inflation. Yeah, I think that's such a valuable exercise. And I really think of retirees as being on a spectrum here. So um, in sort of the perfect inflation, inflation hedged category would be a retiree who's lucky enough to retire with a full pension that's providing most of his or her income needs or all of his or her income needs and is inflation adjustment and adjusted. The problem is such pensions are really pretty rare today, mostly just in the public sector do we see those sorts of pensions, but that's someone who's sort of perfectly protected against inflation. At the other end of the spectrum would be someone who is relying exclusively on his or her portfolio to meet income needs in retirement, and they're hunkered down in very safe investments that don't provide any insulation against inflation. That person is very, very vulnerable to inflation. Most of us will land somewhere between those two poles. So for most retirees, they're getting a portion of their income needs from Social Security, which is inflation adjusted, but they're also pulling additional living expenses from their portfolio, which is not inherently inflation adjusted. So take stock of that, see where you fall on that spectrum. So, Christine, what about at the portfolio level? Let's say someone is tapping into that portfolio as a retiree for retirement income. Are there particular asset classes that will do a better job of helping insulate them against inflation? Definitely. So when we think of fixed income assets, your best ally there is to use some sort of treasury inflation protected securities, professionally managed asset allocations from, say, our colleagues at Morningstar Investment Management would typically include 20 to 30 percent of the fixed income portfolio in treasury inflation protected securities for people who are retired. And then you might think of some ancillary fixed income assets around the margins of your fixed income portfolio. So high yield bonds or bank loans, for example, that's the fixed income piece. On the equity side, I think a key thing to keep in mind is that even though equities are not a hedge against inflation, so if inflation goes up 3%, your equity portfolio won't necessarily go up 3% too, equities have historically generated better returns than inflation. And that's one reason why I would argue that retirees, even conservative ones, should maintain ample exposure to stocks in their portfolios, even in retirement, because that does provide some cushion against inflation. And you've been a little bit less enthusiastic traditionally about some of the categories that investors might think of when it comes uh, comes to inflation protection, like real estate or commodities. Why is that? Well, a couple of reasons. One is that it's really hard to get the timing right on these assets. Um, You might maintain ongoing positions in them, but investors sometimes give up on them at the worst possible time. Um, So that is a key reason. And the other thing um, with commodities is just they're extraordinarily volatile. And so even though they have um, tended to be pretty positively correlated with inflation, many investors just have a hard time sticking with them. So those would be a few of the key reasons that I would be less 
optimistic about including those categories. Another thing to keep in mind is that they are not as encompassing as CPI. So real estate investments have historically had some correlation with inflation, some utility as inflation hedges, but they're really just encompassing a broad, a, a narrow segment of the market. So they're not uh, as broad-based as, say, the uh, inflation adjustment that you would receive with a Treasury inflation-protected security. And then lastly, Christine, what about the idea of adding inflation protection if you're someone who's purchasing an insurance product? So what if you have an option to add a rider for your long-term care policy? Is this something that investors should be thinking about in retirement? Well, it certainly sounds attractive, especially as we're all more worried about inflation. The key thing I would keep in mind, though, is that the pricing for the inflation protection tends to swing around a little bit. And we were recently interviewing an expert on annuities for our podcast, and his point was just that the inflation protection for annuities had just gone through the roof in terms of adding it, that it was prohibitively expensive and that uh, retirees might reasonably just sort of accept that risk because the price of adding that inflation insulation was just extremely high. So we will tend to see that variability. Unfortunately, you'll tend to see the pricing on such features go higher when inflation is very much top of mind for consumers as it is today. So it'll kind of ebb and ebb and flow. Right now, my fear is that such inflation protection is pretty expensive. Well, Christine, thank you so much for your perspective today. We appreciate it. Thank you, Susan. I'm Susan Jabinski with Morningstar. Thanks for tuning in. And lastly, Ben Johnson from Morningstar Research Services talks about thematic funds. Hi, I'm Susan Jabinski with Morningstar. Funds that invest in particular themes, ranging from artificial intelligence to cannabis, have flooded the market. Are these funds merely gimmicks, or can they be useful tools in an investor's kit? Joining me today to provide an overview of some new Morningstar research about thematic funds is Ben Johnson. Ben is Morningstar's Director of Global ETF Research. Ben, thanks for being here today. Thanks for having me, Susan. So Ben, how has the number of thematic funds and investor interest in them grown over time? We've seen dramatic growth in thematic funds over the course of the past few years. In fact, if you look back over the three years through the end of March 2021, assets under management worldwide in thematic funds tripled to nearly $554 billion. That represented 2.1% of all of investors' assets that are invested in managed investment funds worldwide. That's up from 0.6% if you were to go back 10 years. You know, what we've seen at the same time is that the menu of these funds has also grown. Just last year, we saw a record 237 new thematic funds launched globally. That's up from 167 in 2019. And if you look back to the end of March of 2021, Worldwide, there were 1,159 thematic funds available to investors around the world. And what we've seen is, is really that a lot of this has been driven by net new money, net new interest on the part of investors. So if you look at the U.S. menu of thematic funds in particular, more than $81 billion in new money flowed into U.S. thematic funds in 2020, and during the first quarter of this year, 
what we saw was the strongest quarterly flows on record. More than $35 billion flowed into thematic funds in the U.S. in the first three months of 2021. Now, what themes seem to be resonating most with investors? Well, it's a great question. And there are really a variety of different themes that fall under this umbrella that range from advances in in technology. So think of things like electric vehicles, think of things like DNA sequencing, uh, to on the other end of the continuum, you mentioned before cannabis themed funds. There are now psychedelic themed funds. There are also more timely themes, emerging themes that we've seen come up over recent months. Uh, Just in 2020, we saw three different work from home themed ETFs that were launched, that were brought to the market in in the US. The ones that have really resonated are the ones that tend to be more broader in in scope. Uh, Those that focus on a variety of different emerging themes, they tend to feature prominently in, in their legal names or their marketing materials, words like innovation and disruption, which is, is really broad spectrum. It can apply across a variety of sectors, across a variety of industries. The other sub-themes that really have proved popular over the course of the past year plus have been those with a clean energy focus. As part of the excitement around infrastructure development, a green new deal, what we've seen is that investors have poured into green energy themed ETFs. In fact, if you look at one of those ETFs in particular, the iShares Global Clean Energy ETF, ICLN, is the ticker for that fund. That fund grew 885% on an organic basis over the 12 months through March. It got so big, it actually had to change its underlying index to accommodate its heft. So very broad sort of innovation, disruption-oriented thematic funds, those from the ARC family of funds in particular, which has seen tremendous growth. So if you look at uh, 2020 alone, ARC in and of itself accounted for one-fifth of all of the money that flowed into all thematic funds. In the first three months of this year, it accounted for nearly one-half of the flows into thematic funds. So part of it is, is the themes, part of it is the family. And in this case, it's a family that's produced a tremendous performance and has seen absolutely torrential flows uh, for much of, of the past year. And as I mentioned before, clean energy, an, another theme that has been very popular with investors over the course of the past year plus. So let's talk a little bit about performance of thematic funds over time. What what does that look like in general? Well, if you look at success rates among U.S. thematic funds, over the short term, they've done actually remarkably well. So if you look back at 2020, of all of the thematic funds that are available to investors in the marketplace, 80% of them outperformed the Morningstar Global Markets Index during the calendar year. Now, why is that? They they tend to lean into growthier names, smaller names, those names that really got a lift across the board last year during a year in which growth outperformed value by an absolutely massive margin. So uniformly, almost uniformly across these funds is should be a little surprise. What you see is, is more of a growth bent, in some cases an ultra growth bent, which really helped them over the short term and which helps to explain their, their recent popularity. They've performed remarkably well. 
Now that said, if you go back further in history, their track record really isn't anything to write home about. So over the trailing 15 year period, what we saw is that among the thematic funds that were available to investors 15 years ago, nearly half of them have since been closed and less than a third of them have both survived and outperformed the Morningstar Global Markets Index over the subsequent 15 year period. So given that longer term performance, uh, how might investors use thematic funds in a portfolio? Should they even be thinking about that or steering clear entirely of them? I think investors should know what they're getting into. I I like in investing in thematic funds to, to placing a trifecta bet at the horse track. So in the case of a trifecta bet, you're, you're trying to get three things right. You're trying to get, in this case, the theme right. So is the theme real? Is it durable? You're trying to get the stocks right. So are the stocks in this fund or the stocks in this portfolio, be it an indexed portfolio, be it a discretionary active portfolio, the ones that are going to capitalize on that theme today, tomorrow, and well into the future. And then third, and, and perhaps most importantly, are the valuations right? Are these compelling values or has the market already priced in much of investors' enthusiasm about whatever this theme might be? And what we see is that based on historical performance, much of investors' enthusiasm tends to be priced in by the time that there are you know, one or more thematic funds targeting a specific trend, a specific theme that are brought to the market. So investors should come in with eyes wide open, they should be choosy, but they can consider these thematic funds around the corners of their portfolios. Maybe if they've got some funny money set aside to take a more speculative position. The other role I, I think they could potentially play for an investor's portfolio is as a single stock substitute. So investors might buy into a particular theme, but they might not have the resources or the inclination to really dig in and understand what are the best of breed stocks that are going to capitalize on that theme. So if you like the theme, but you don't know which stocks to pick, you you might be well served to outsource that work either to a discretionary active manager or to a thematic index fund or, or ETF. Well, Ben, thank you so much for your time today and perspective on this growing part of the ETF market. We appreciate it. Thanks for having me. I'm Susan Jabinski with Morningstar. Thank you for tuning in. That does it for this week's Investing Insights podcast from Morningstar. We hope you have enjoyed our program and we welcome your feedback. Please send your comments and questions to podcast at Morningstar.com. From everyone here at Morningstar, thanks for listening. This recording is for informational purposes only and should not be considered investment advice. Opinions expressed are as of the date of recording. Such opinions are subject to change. The views and opinions of guests on this program are not necessarily those of Morningstar Inc. and its affiliates. Morningstar and its affiliates are not affiliated with this guest or his or her business affiliates unless otherwise stated. Morningstar does not guarantee the accuracy or the completeness of the data presented herein. The podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be considered tax advice. Please consult a tax and or financial professional for advice specific to your individual circumstances. Morningstar Research Services, LLC, is a subsidiary of Morningstar, Inc. and is registered with and governed by the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission. Morningstar Research Services shall not be responsible for any trading decisions, damages, or other losses resulting from or related to the information, 
data analysis, or opinions or their use. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results. All investments are subject to investment risk, including possible loss of principal. Individuals should seriously consider if an investment is suitable for them by referencing their own financial position, investment objectives, and risk profile before making any investment decision.